Good morning, General. General, do we have too many white officers in the Air Force? Senator, what I really look at is the quality of all the officers that we have, and, and, and we look at the, the aspect of everyone who's qualified, um, meets, uh, meets the qualifications, uh, is, is promoted. And what well, I, I would agree with you, but that, that, is, that answer is not consistent with your August 9th memo. In your August 9th memo, you said that you signed on to that there should be a reduction, essentially, of about 9% of the white officers. That's 5,400, we have 5,400, you know, too many white officers. And this is the real impact, I think, of this desire of the administration. I'm saddened to see this in this memo, of this, of this obsession with sort of race-based politics being interjected into our military. How did you come up with the percentage of 67.5% of the officers should be white? And how did you come up with 13% should be black? And how did you come up with 10% should be Asian? And how did you come up with 1.5% should be American Indian and Native Alaskan? How did you come up with 1% being Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander? And how did you come up with 15% of our officers should be Hispanic or Latino? Senator, that is based on the, uh, that memo is on application goals, not the actual makeup of the force. And those, those numbers are based on uh, the demographics of the nation. Okay, well, all right. There's 10% of our country is Asian American. So is that, is that, the, is that where you came up with it, just a, just a percentage of the population? Uh, essentially. Because right now the actual percentage I mean, this is, this is where this is a ridiculous conversation, to be perfectly honest, because the, why didn't you come up with, or are you going to come up with the percentage of the overall force? Did you contemplate that? Of how many, you know, black Americans should be in the Air Force? Or how many Asian Americans should be in the Air Force? Did you contemplate the total force percentages? Senator, what we looked at was the aspect of providing opportunities for anybody who wants to serve. Listen, I, if that were the case, listen, um, if that were what was in this memo, I wouldn't be asking you these questions. But we have in a memo signed by you that you think right now there are too many white officers. Um, and, and this is a blanket statement. And so I could go down the line of questioning of which of the 5,400 white officers that we have too many should be fired. Because that is the actual impact of all this. I agree with you. Your story about wanting to be the best pilot in the Air Force, regardless of race, that is what the military is supposed to be. It's this great meritocracy. It's why there's uniforms and haircuts. And, I, and I've heard so many of my colleagues talk. Welcome back to the Rob Manus Show, the Marxist March through America's military. Enough's enough's. Silence is consent. It's Training Tuesday here at the Red Voice Media Network on this show live, and we're going to give you the facts and the truth, and that makes us dangerous, according to a lot of people, especially the people in the corporate propaganda media that's the government's mouthpiece today. The evidence is inescapable. Much of today's military leadership has embraced Marxism's critical race theory. It's preparing their leadership academies to indoctrinate it. And it's obfuscating those two facts in testimony to Congress. You just watched it. 
American citizens need to understand that their armed forces leadership has embraced and doubled down on a diversity, equity, and inclusion, otherwise known as DEI. The current nominee for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General C.Q. Brown, that you just swatched, is either more interested in the racial balance of the armed forces than its combat effectiveness or believes that combat effectiveness can be achieved through racial balancing. Try running that perspective through the management of a or a fan base of any major professional or college sports programming, including the service academies sports programs. To see how that logic flies in organizations laser focused on what? What do they do? Winning. For that matter, try that on any program manager for a complex weapon system development team like, I don't know, the F-35. Winning is the only thing. That's just not a catchy phrase from Vince Lombardi. In warfare, winning is the only thing. It's our job. Well, my guest today is retired U.S. Navy Captain Tom Burbage. Uh, he's a Naval Academy graduate and Navy Test Pilot School graduate and literally wrote the book on the F-35 program because he ran it. He has more than 3,000 hours and 38 types of military aircraft in his aviation industry career. He was the executive vice president for the F-22 and later the F-35 programs. He serves as the president of the Calvert Group, which is a group of Naval Academy alumni and others whose mission is to support and defend the Constitution of the United States and the principles of the United States Naval Academy. Tom, welcome to the Rob Mana Show live here on Red Voice Media Network. Hey, Rob, thanks very much for having me. It's, it's a great pleasure to be here. I've followed you and, and uh, your friends and stars for many months now, so it's great to be part of that. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I didn't even mention that in the bio is that uh, you do, you guys do work with stars. Uh, uh, so my audience hasn't heard a lot about the Calvert Group, sir. Uh, could you just uh, fill them in on, you know, what's the Calvert Group? I gave a little short description, but what has your team been up to when it comes to uh, your goal? The Calvert Group uh, is a group of uh, classmates, started out as a bunch of guys out of the class of 69 from the Naval Academy that got together a couple times a year to play golf. And we just labeled ourselves that. It's named after the superintendent at the academy at the time we were there, who was a great leader in the Navy. And over Tom there for a second. We'll work to get him back. Tom, it looks like you're back. Uh, go ahead. Uh, we, you got cut off there uh, starting to talk about Calvert. Okay. I apologize for that. I, I lost you for a second there too. The, um, yeah, it's a group that's of concerned alumni that are basically wanting to make sure that the values uh, that we went through as Naval Academy graduates and, and served um, our country for are alive and well in the process of developing the leaders tomorrow. That's really the focus of what our group is. Very similar to what STARS is doing, we consider the service academies as a group to be a very important institutions for developing future leaders for tomorrow. Uh, are the alumni from the Naval Academy seeing similar things that STARS, and folks, STARS is an acronym for Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services, and I'm on the Board of Advisors, so that'd be all transparency. Uh, uh, but but are, is the academy seeing the same level of attempts to uh, indoctrinate the future leadership of the service in DEI and CRT and gender ideology? 
we saw a good bit of that when we started this effort a couple of years ago. It's been about three years now since we've been active. Um, it seems to be the pendulum seems to be swimming, swinging back the other way slightly, maybe. Uh, at least we hope it is. Um, there's pockets of support for it and pockets of resistance to it, as there is in every institution. I think all three service academies are a little bit different in how they're approaching it. Um, Naval Academy may not be quite um, as strong in it as the Air Force Academy is, um, and the West Point is somewhere in between us, I think. So, so we're just working to try and keep attention on the problem, make sure that people understand what it is, try to get rid of the apathy factor, which seems to be permeating a lot of things these days. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the testimony a few weeks ago, but all the service academy, all three of them, superintendents were uh, testifying before the House of Representatives uh, Armed Services Committee. Uh, and uh, the Navy admiral seemed to, at least uh, from, a, from a presentation perspective, it had, had not, didn't seem to have bought totally into uh, DEI and CRT like the Air Force Academy, SOUP, and, and the Army. Uh, West Point uh, superintendent had it was it was obvious there was a there seemed to be a difference at least on the presentation side of that that's a, that's good news. I think that's a fair assessment, uh, Rob. I, I really do. I think Admiral Buck, um, you know, he supports the administration. He reports to the commander in chief. He has all the sure. throwdown that comes with that, and I think he was doing his best to try and you know walk a line between where things were going a little bit off the rails and where things need to be. So. He's now moving on, um, retiring, and a uh, new superintendent will come in, so we'll see how she does. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you got to see the cold open video there of General Brown being questioned by Senator Eric Schmidt uh, during the Senate Armed Service Committee confirmation hearing uh, for his nomination to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, but, uh, you know, but that was all about a memo that he and the Secretary of the Air Force signed that actually stated there were 5,400 too many white male officers uh, in the United States Air Force. Uh, and, and, the, and it comes, in, it comes in, the, in the context, you know, uh, that memo and General Brown's tenure as the, ch the chief of staff of the Air Force uh, 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 comes uh, on the heels of a report from the Heritage Foundation this past spring that rated the Air Force as having reduced its combat readiness and combat effectiveness based on different policies, and CRT and DEI was one of them. Uh, uh, so uh, is the Calvert Group working to uh, communicate with uh, the Congress, especially the Senate, about this man's conversation, con uh, confirmation? Sorry about that, I slipped on my own tongue. Uh, because I know STARS is, uh, I, I, we are individually, I know I am with my two senators. Uh, I mean, the answer to me is just no, we cannot have someone that uh, is wedded to this Marxist cultural ideology. We are trying to follow in the footsteps of STARS on that subject. Um, we have a core group of about 30 or so of us that are actively working everything, working every day and every week. And then we have another bigger group of alumni that's growing um, every day, bigger and bigger, which is encouraging to us, I think. And we've mm -hmm. all distributed it across the United States into different congressional districts, different states, and we are actively communicating with the representatives that represent them. Yeah, the, 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 I think the scary part for those of us that are uh, veterans, especially former officers, uh, is, is that how many other 
uh, general and flag officers at that level have are so indoctrinated and uh, and wedded to this ideology. We we found that to be one of the most surprising things as we got deeper and deeper into this. You know, we were like everybody else. A couple of years ago, we trusted everything that was going on. Probably mm -hmm. shouldn't have trusted. You know, as President Reagan used to say, "Don't trust without verifying." But we assumed that our school systems were trustworthy. We assumed that our elected officials in Congress were trustworthy. And we sort of just went with the flow until we started scratching below the surface and finding a lot of these kinds of issues that we were very concerned about because the institution of the service academies is that four-year bridge between what they've been indoctrinated in all the way through their public schools and high school systems and what they're going to be doing when they get into the fleet in the case of the Navy or the Air Arm in the case of the Air Force. So, so that's a compressed time, four years, to make that conversion. And it's difficult to do when it's in the, you know, in the culture of the brigade. Yeah, and uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's the same at the Naval Academy, but at the Air Force Academy, as you know, I mean, it's all the way down to uh, to the squad level. I mean, you have DEI, Purple Armband, uh, uh, I call them uh, political officers. That's what we used to call the Soviet communist officers that were at every level of the unit down to the squad level that are monitoring people uh, to make sure they're toeing the line and they get reported if they don't. I mean, that's... That's a level of uh, indoctrination uh, that, you know, a poke in your chest indoctrination that not even the service academies have really uh, followed in the past from an ideology perspective, I don't believe, is it? Well, there were two things that we were concerned about, and we went and met with the superintendent uh, and talked to him about these things. One was the DEI structure was not in the normal chain of command. It wasn't in the command of the company officer or the company commander who is a midshipman, it was outside of that. It was a separate reporting yeah. responsibility, which concerned us, number one. And number two was the proliferation of a lot of what they call their um, affinity groups. Um, there's probably 14 or 15 at the academy now. They're all based on separating racial differences as opposed to unifying racial differences. You know, there's, yeah. there, there's all different kinds of clubs. And so, we said, well, that's, that doesn't seem to be building what you need to do as the military that we know and, and love and care about. Um, so we raised those two issues, didn't get any real good answers at the time. My, my sense is it's, again, it's starting to come back to some sense of normalcy. I think COVID was a big setback for the service academies. You know, a lot of them sent their kids home for a good bit of that. And uh, yeah. they, lost, they lost a lot of the, the spree that came along with being a member of that fairly elite group. Well, Tom, we've got to do commercials on this live show now to pay for it. So we're up on our first break. Uh, uh, when we come back, uh, we'll show another little video of a senior Air Force officer, Brigadier General, uh, and what his most important accomplishment is uh, uh, in today's United States Air Force. You're going to be surprised and shocked. At least the audience will be. We'll be right back on the Red Voice Media Network with Rob Manus Live. Attention Americans, breaking news. Biden's dangerous plan for a digital dollar is underway. Don't be fooled. It won't benefit you. Take action now. The Federal Reserve phase deployment of FedNow began on July 1st, 2023. Be prepared. This may catch many off guard. Your hard-earned assets are in jeopardy. But there's a simple legal tax loophole 
to opt out of the digital dollar. Reach out to American Alternative Assets for a free wealth protection guide and discover how to safeguard your wealth with gold and silver IRAs against a failing dollar and volatile markets. Visit protectfrombiden.com. This invaluable guide provides precise steps to transfer your IRA or 401k into precious metals without any tax consequences. Be smart. Don't let Biden force you into using the government's new digital dollar. Visit protectfrombiden.com to get your free guide and get started. Again, that's protectfrombiden.com. Attention fellow Americans, I can't say it enough, breaking news, Biden's dangerous plan for a digital dollar is being implemented as we speak. Don't be fooled. It's not going to benefit you or me. Act now before it's too late. The Federal Reserve's phased deployment of FedNow started on July 1st, 2023, just weeks ago. But brace yourselves, this is probably going to catch you off guard like it did me. Your hard-earned assets are at risk. There's a way to legally opt out of the digital dollar in time, and that's what one straightforward, entirely legal tax loophole. Contact my friends at American Alternative Assets for a free wealth protection guide. Learn how to safeguard your wealth from a failing dollar in volatile markets with gold and silver IRAs. Dial 833, the number 2, USA Gold. That's right. Call now, 833-287-2465. This invaluable guide will outline the precise steps you need to take to immediately transfer your IRA or 401k into precious metals, all without any tax consequences. Don't let Biden force you into the, using the government's new digital dollar. Call 833-2-USA-GOLD. That's right. Call now, 833-287-2465 or 833-2-USA-GOLD. Well, welcome back to The Rob Manus Show here on Red Voice Media Live uh, Network. Uh, we are telling you the truth and the facts and we need you to take action on this subject. Call your senators and tell them to vote no on the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff nominee. We want somebody that's not wedded to Marxist, racist ideology, uh, and the current nominee is. He's got a proven track record of it and a track record of, of uh, lowering the readiness of the United States Air Force that he led for three years. It's unfortunate that I have to say that, being an Air Force officer. When we're talking to uh, Captain Tom Burbage today, uh, I want to show that clip number two uh, uh, Krista, uh, before we bring uh, Captain Burbridge back in. Um, so diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility uh, under the leadership of uh, Mr. Cecil Williams is uh, a huge accomplishment and we're pacing the Air Force, pushing uh, forward, uh, forging the path for the Air Force in, in diversity and inclusion. And that was all accelerated in the wake of George Floyd. And uh, we, we grabbed a hold of the initiative and uh, have really made something of it and are making progress with it that will now yield results uh, that helps unlock the, the power of our workforce. And uh, I, I think that's uh, gonna be perhaps the most long-standing and significant accomplishment. That was an Air Force Brigadier General stating that his most significant accomplish accomplishment in his entire career 
was establishing the Air Force's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Office. And we're talking with Captain Tom Burbage, the president of the Calvert Group from the U.S. Naval Academy and an author, uh, wrote the book on the F-35 Lightning II program. We're going to talk about that in the last half of the program. I'm excited about that. Uh, but, uh, but Tom, uh, you know, did you notice that he left the word equity out of it when he said diversity and inclusion office, not diversity, equity, and inclusion? I wouldn't check. It is the diversity, equity, and inclusion office. And that's your key indicator to me. When you see DEI or equity included in that, that's a critical race theory ideology that comes right out of cultural Marxism. Uh, every author that's uh, that's named about it, that writes book about it, and a lot of those books have been uh, forced on the cadets of the service academies. We know that now. Not to teach them how to be wary of that ideology, but to indoctrinate in, in them to use that ideology. That's a scary thought. It's very scary, and um, I think the you know there's a saying that words matter. I think words have been very camouflaged in this discussion in the last couple of years. You can't argue with diversity and inclusion being strengths uh, when used properly, but you can certainly argue with the E word, the equity word, and it's been defined differently in different audiences, almost like it's meant to go under the radar. But in fact, it is a it, it is a critical factor in changing the way people think. Yeah, you know, and the service academies, uh, at least the Air Forces, and I'm pretty sure the other two do have an honor code. You know, part of that is we will not lie and we won't tolerate those who do. Uh, and uh, you keep seeing senior officers and senior political appointees. The political appointees, I could see them lying, but they shouldn't do it under oath, for God's sake. Uh, uh, but you keep seeing these, these men and women uh, uh, dissemble. Uh, which really is quibbling, uh, a form of, of not being truthful. You know, uh, you see them obfuscate by, uh, by not answering the questions about the word equity. They love to talk about diversity and inclusion. And you know what? That's because we're, we're they're my age, uh, they're my peers. Uh, the three and four stars are, are in, in my peer group uh, today. And that's because we were taught Martin Luther King's philosophy growing up and we believed it. We actually tried to live by it, which is you judge people based on their character, not because of their color, their skin, or even the choices they make in their bedroom. Uh, it, 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 that's what's concerning to me is that we really believe that, but you know, the superintendent of the Air Force Academy was told a congressman when uh, he was asked uh, what it meant to him to hear the words, I believe in a colorblind society. And he said something to the effect of, well, if one of my commanders said that they followed the colorblind society philosophy of Martin Luther King, uh, essentially, uh, that uh, he would look differently at them and question their veracity and their character and their leadership ability. Uh, that is puzzling when it comes to, you know, leading the complex teams, especially in combat that you and I have uh, brought, been brought up in, been members of, and become leaders of, recognized as leaders, as commanders and, uh, and executives uh, in the system. Uh, you don't lead a team by dividing it successfully, especially under the stresses of combat. That's exactly right. And that's been the point that we've been trying to make. And I find the same the same issue with the leaders of today, the three stars and the four stars and 
and even uh, my classmates, uh, how did how did we lose, you know, the focus on that? Such a critical piece of uh, what we've grown up to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly right, Tom. Uh, I I don't know if it's as much a lack of focus as it is uh, that taking the different trail. They came to a Y in the trails, and one the one to the right that leads to a society that that recognizes merit that and, and, and guarantees uh, equality of opportunity. You know, everybody has the same chance. Uh, you just work hard, and uh, and 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 the best will uh, will be the most successful. But they didn't take that path. They took the path of equity. Uh, and the path of equity leads you down to guaranteed outcomes, you know, and uh, you can even see it in, in the Air Force pilot training program. Now there's a diversity, equity, and inclusion aspect to selecting pilot applicants. A year ago versus the year before that, you know, there are always about 64, 65% white male applicants, and usually somewhere within a couple percentage of points of that, that number up, to, up until a year ago would be close to that applicant number, you know, and all the other uh, racial and other dem and gender demographic groups uh, would line up pretty much with where they had their applicants most of the time. But last year, you had the same number of white male applicants, but their selection rate was down to 53%. And in total, uh, in total, the underrepresented groups is what the Air Force categorizes everybody else in besides white males. Uh, you know, they were, you know, getting close to 50%, where before, you know, it'd be, you know, 35, 36%, uh, because, just because of the number of the applicants and the competitiveness of the packages and everything. Uh, that is uh, not the way to pick your best pilots and weapon systems officers, uh, maintenance officers, or any uh, NCOs or anything on a military team. That's exactly right, exactly right. I think there's two areas that, this is the one major area that's been a big point of contention going forward. There's another one that, that, that I've talked to a lot of people about, and that's the oath that you and I both took when we signed up to go into this. Yeah. Exactly the same oath that's taken by every government official, every member of Congress, and it's even expanded a little bit at the president level to add the word preserve, but it's all about the Constitution. And it seems like while we've lost focus on our societal objectives of, of equal um, opportunities, not equal outcomes. We've lost that mm. focus. We're also losing the focus on what our Constitution represents and and the uh, the trust factor that I mentioned in the beginning with our different institutional forms, including the service academies, but also the Department of Justice, Department FBI, the everything else. It's all under a threat right now, and and I it's difficult for me and others to understand why everybody doesn't see it. It is. It is hard to to understand why most people can't see it. I mean, it's it's easy for us to say, look at DOD because we know it so well. We, I mean, all of us. I, mean, I served for over thirty years, uh, just like you have. Uh, so so we know it very well, uh, and, and it, it glare. I mean, it blasts a horn out to us. You know, a flashing red light. This stuff does. Uh, but the, the average citizen, after seeing what's going on in the FBI, the Department of Justice, the Homeland Security, the intelligence uh, community, HHS, the CDC, all of that, I believe they are starting to see it. Unfortunately, it's marched through those institutions, and the DOD is the last one really 
uh, it was the last bastion of, of a meritocracy. Uh, and, uh, and I see it slipping away, uh, and there's not enough folks that understand what's going on. I share your concern about that. Uh, I want, before we move on to the next segment and start talking about your book, uh, the, uh, the, the CNO pick, uh, the, you co-wrote an article not too long ago with uh, Brent Ramsey uh, and another guy uh, about the, the, the president's pick for chief of naval operations. Uh, over the advice of the Secretary of, uh, of Defense. And I read the article, and man, when I look at the chart, you guys put a chart in there comparing their records, Tom. It's, uh, it, it, it's Admiral uh, Franchetti uh, and Admiral Paparo, who is the, guy, the gentleman that uh, uh, Secretary Austin recommended. But Biden picked the woman who's Admiral Franchetti. And I'm sure she's a great officer. You don't become a four-star officer without being a great uh, uh, military officer in any service, but the record of the record is what stood out to me. Where Papero is a combat veteran, he has two master's degrees, one in, in uh, international studies and one in systems. Uh, uh, systems. Uh, uh, the uh, admiral, other admiral, Franchetti is MA in journalism and an MA from an online university. No war college is what stood out to me. You know, how do you make a flag rank? in today's joint force without going to war college and, and even more importantly, the joint professional military education courses? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I, and again, it, it always becomes personal, you know, it always becomes yeah. gender related, but it's really not. It's about the most qualified, best pick yeah. for, the, for the, the world situation that we find ourselves in today. Um, and you basically put records side by side and that's how you normally would pick. Um, yeah. Unless you're in, embedded in other political objectives, and so we were just raising, again, it, not a personal attack on anybody um, that can make absolutely. The it's really just meant to, to to question question mark. Are we are we really using the right selection criteria for these really key positions going forward in a world that's sort of coming apart at the seams right now? Exactly right, and you know, and those those few things that I just rattled off there are things that that are your record and my record. Every time we come up to compete for something, uh, our records are put side by side with everybody else's. You know, and, and I've been on boards. I'm sure you have been too on promotion and selection boards uh, and everything. And you're looking for the things that stand out one way or the other. Uh, uh, because there are certain requirements. The things I just rattled off are pretty much requirements uh, to be a joint officer, uh, you know, and uh, that's, uh, that's impressive that uh, she was able to do that. She must be a fine officer, but, you know, in the, today's world of the potential warfare with China uh, and what's going on with Russia and the Ukraine, what's going on in the Middle East again, uh, now what's going on in Africa, uh, you know, we really need competent, experienced uh, commanders that have uh, seen combat uh, uh, and uh, have long experiences and successes in that, too. And I think that should really make a big difference on the qualification list. But we'll see. We'll see how it goes uh, with that one. But uh, we got to take another break, Tom. When we come back, we'll talk about your book, uh, spend the next two segments talking about one of my favorite subjects, the F-35 Lightning II. We'll be right back on The Rob Mana Show.
moms and dads of America, you love your kids, you love God, you love this country, and you're tired of watching companies betray your values and ruin great products. Don't get angry. Invest your time, energy, and money into the people that are building the country you want for your kids and standing for the values that will lead to their blessing and protection. Invest in companies like Brave Books. They are on a mission to create content for kids that is safe for them to enjoy. They have kids' books that teach about character, hard work, and the value of being brave. If you join their Book of the Month Club, you get a new book sent to your door every month that will teach your kids pro-God, pro-American values. Brave Books will not betray your trust. Your children and your grandchildren will thank you. Remember, the land of the free depends on the homes of the brave. This one's on me, bud. the most expensive weapon system ever built, the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. Designed to be a prized deadly weapon and agile fighter, critics have slammed its overrunning costs and production deadlines as disgraceful and a scandal. Production of the plane is seriously delayed and costs have nearly doubled to $400 billion. Three F-35 planes are in the United Kingdom, their first overseas trip ahead of the Farnborough Air Show. The fighter jet has been plagued with technical problems from the start. In April, a U.S. government report revealed that a failure in the brain of the plane, or ALIS, could see the entire fleet taken offline. The report also claimed that not enough testing had been done on its software. In March, engineers discovered its radar system kept crashing. The list of problems goes on to include everything from the handling and weaponry to reports that the ejector seat could kill a pilot if they don't weigh enough. The plane was built by Lockheed Martin, but also includes parts from BAE Systems and Rolls-Royce. The U.S. Air Force is expected to announce that the jets will be ready for action this August. But the U.S. Project on Government Oversight claims the deadline cannot be met. The Air Force have rejected any reports of a delay, but also acknowledged all the technical issues in the report were factually accurate. Phil Hahn, CNBC, London. Welcome back to the Rob Maynard Show, live on the Red Voice Media Network, where we dare to bring you the facts and the truth, and that makes us dangerous uh, to the corporate media, which is basically the government's mouthpiece today. Uh, and uh, that aircraft right there, the F-35 Lightning II, we, ha we have the rare opportunity to talk to someone that's not only written a book about it, the F-35, the inside story of the Lightning II. Krista, why don't you go ahead and put the book cover up real quick? Uh, you can find this book at Amazon, uh, and uh, it is uh, a, a very interesting book. Like I said, 
uh, author Tom Burbage, uh, along with his colleagues there. Uh, Tom's with us today as a retired U.S. Navy captain, test pilot, and was the program manager executive for the F-35 program. Uh, so he knows the real story of it. And, uh, and the, the quick, quick version of the short read I read of it makes it worth the buy. Go buy that. You can get it at Amazon. Just uh, just type in F-35. It goes right to it. Uh, and uh, Tom, uh, welcome back. Uh, you know, this is uh, the show, part of the show that I look forward to because usually I'm doing a whole hour on something like critical race theory and I don't get to talk about jets. Now, I'm a B-1B backseater. Uh, so uh, my last flight uh, uh, qualification in that aircraft was in the E, the Block E mod. So we had air to air radar, but we didn't have yet uh, things like uh, LCD flat panel displays. We had old uh, uh, 1980s, late 70s type cathode ray tube uh, displays and everything, but it was very modern. However, this jet, the F-35, I sat in a cockpit a bit. Uh, it was it was a you know a display cockpit and had had a uh, uh, one of the uh, engineers talk me through what I was looking at when I was a major okay <laughs> in Air Command and Staff College. So uh, uh, I retired ten years ago. Uh, and, uh, so you can imagine how many years ago it was. As a major, when when he laid everything out for me, I could see that. Okay, my job had been taken up by artificial intelligence in some form or another, the backseater. Uh, I could see that uh, uh, that we have we had are going to attempt to uh, it did successfully, I think, integrate this the uh, the capability of directional audio and the ability to actually see through the aircraft skin. Uh, so if you have a directional audio of a missile warning. Uh, coming at you to, and to actually be able to see that missile by looking down through the floor of the aircraft is the way I understood it. Uh, uh, so I knew right away this is going to be a complex system. Uh, it, it, the stories were already out there, and you just saw that in the, a little bit in that clip. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and those are pretty common stories about the F-35. But uh, you ran the program, man. Uh, that's why I'm excited to get you on. What are those all just BS stories? I mean, there usually is a grain of truth to things that come out, even if they're wrong. Uh, you know, what's going on uh, with the whole program of this from its inception to development uh, to fielding that people were really missing? Because I get the sense that we were all missing something. Well, this is a very high technology program. And I retired 10 years ago also from Lockheed Martin. Um, and I was on the program for 13 years. So, mm -hmm. so it takes a long time, but there's a number of phases you go through before you get into full production. This year, they expect to have 1,000 F-35s, operational F-35s out there across the three U.S. services and the international partner countries. So putting that program together and then doing all of the engineering associated with it, and then most importantly, the software that came on top of it. The airplane is a very software-intensive airplane. Um, yeah. The, the, I'm not sure what the date was on that clip you just showed, but a lot of the things that were in that was seven years. That, that was seven years ago. I forgot to say that. I meant to say that. Se that's yeah. a seven-year-old clip. It's not a current picture of the airplane. That's all I was. I wanted to say. <laughs> yeah, there are lots of challenges. You know, that when they uh, when they expanded the pilot population to include lightweight females and lightweight Asian males, the ejectancy requirements went way down in terms of weight. 
And so we yeah. had to have an ejection seat that wasn't going to hurt the small person, but get the big guy out of the cockpit when it was time to go. So there was a lot of development like that that went on as the program was going on. It's not an issue today. Um, you talked about seeing through the airplane. The airplane has a distributed aperture uh, arrangement where there's cameras that stare out in the infrared spectrum forward mm -hmm. and aft sideways, and they connect to the pilot's helmet. So you're not really looking at anything but what the camera's showing you. You're not right. seeing the windscreen or anything. And then by definition, you're looking outside the airplane. So the airplane more or less disappears. Interesting when the when you see the B model, this the uh, short takeoff vertical landing version that the Marine Corps uses. You come back to land over the ship and you look down and you see the ship where you're going to land. You don't try to judge things around the periphery. But it's also, you know, it's, it's a it's a highly capable airplane. It has three variants. We did have a, it wasn't error free. The book is based on a little over 100 interviews with the key people that that lived the program. Um, I joined it late. The other two authors started it before I, I was one of their interviewees. Yeah. And then I realized I could probably contribute to the book to make sure it was as accurate as we could make it. But most of the journey, the human journey of the F-35 is done through the eyes of the 100 or so other people, government officials, test pilots, Lockheed Martin leaders. Um, and it was, a, it was a tough slog in some areas, but it was a very, uh, you know, fruitful and, and uh, exciting program for everybody that participated in it. Yeah, I'm not sure people realize today that uh, that this you, you lay this out in the very first paragraph of the preface. Uh, you guys do uh, that the 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 history of the aircraft. Let's see, it's devised under the gospel. That's an interesting choice of words of acquisition reform. But then it had to take on the challenge of unifying three all three services which we've tried that before f111 that comes to mind uh and some others uh, uh had eight allied nations involved in the i didn't realize this until i read this that they were actually involved in the development process too not just the production so the so eight allies uh and you know and then it had to tr deliver all these transformational capabilities you know stealth was you know this is only really the third uh, actually, the fourth, I guess, uh, stealth combat aircraft that we fielded. Uh, but that that stuff is that technology is always evolving, uh, you know. So so then you gotta you gotta lay all that in there. And I just described uh, from a uh, I guess an archaic backseaters perspective now what I saw. Uh, and, and you talked a little bit about it too, you know, like seeing through the airplane and uh, the uh, the directional audio. The, uh, uh, the I mean, it's a it's an incredible uh, feat. And I just I mean, some of the stories that you heard, if you guys interviewed folks from that part of the process, trying to put the thing together, that must be some interesting stories. Well, uh, it, they are. Many of them are very interesting, and we we started out with the keep it simple attitude, you know, where we we're going to do the simple airplane first, simple in quotes, which was the Air Force version because it didn't have any special requirements for takeoff and landing. And then do the Marine Corps one second and the Navy one third. That was sort of the logical progression. And we realized that there's not enough engineers in the world to design all three of those simultaneously. And you want to take lessons learned from one and go to the next. But we started yeah. projecting some weight problems on the Stovall airplane, even though it hadn't been designed yet. We were projecting weight going forward as being um, mm -hmm. an inability to achieve some of its key requirements. So we did a redesign and changed the order and went back to do the Marine Corps version first, then the Air Force version, then the Navy version. That switch was added about 18 months of engineering. 
to the to the uh, to the program. And of course, when you add that kind of time, uh, time is money on a program like this. You have all the engineers and all the program offices yeah. and all the government offices that are charging to the program. So that was the major issue that happened on the airplane, and it was it was very. Um, forgiving of the government, I would have to say, to allow the program to continue, but they had enough faith in it that we were going to get through that process. And I think it's proven to be everything that everybody thought it would be. Yeah, and we'll talk about that in the next segment. Unfortunately, we got to pay some more bills with a commercial or two here. Uh, and uh, we'll be right back talking with one of the authors of the F-35, the inside story of the Lightning II, retired Navy captain and test pilot uh, Tom Burbage. This is Rob Matus on the Red Voice Media Network. How in the world could such a small group of people with limited resources change world history? But in fact, that's happening, and it's the power of the truth. The truth is like kryptonite. Healthcare isn't, in some sense, working very well. Foster Colson is thinking about this. He's got a new company, an online healthcare platform called The Wellness Company. Telehealth company called The Wellness Company. The Wellness Company. TWC.health is The Wellness Company. The most popular product is the detoxification supplement. That features natokinase. Natokinase is the only enzyme that we're aware of right now that dissolves the spike protein. Spike protein is loaded in the body with the COVID-19 infection and definitely with the vaccines. We've been completely accurate on the spread of the virus, early treatment, on the deficiencies in hospital care, and now the deaths that are occurring after vaccination. This is a human outrage and it's occurring at the end of a hypodermic needle. Isn't it interesting? Natural substance is combating this man-made disaster. The F-35 fighter jet is a complex and expensive aircraft that has faced criticism for its high cost, technical issues, and limited capabilities. Was the F-35 program a failure? Overall, no. F-35 succeeds in situational awareness and data fusion. This is the way how future air wars would be fought. The F-35 is a stealthy fighter with a powerful engine capable of high speeds. It carries up to six weapons externally and four internally, including a hidden four-barrel 25-millimeter rotary cannon. Over 800 were built and used by 35 countries, and 14 countries have placed orders for them, with more hopeful buyers getting in line. While operating costs are high, the price is dropping, and the unit cost is competitive with radically inferior NATO fourth-gen aircraft. The program's F-35 includes being difficult to detect by radar, providing situational awareness, and operating in various environments. The F-35 success depends on its performance in combat, and it is still too early to determine its failure definitively. Welcome back to the Rob Ada Show here live on the Red Voice Media Network. Uh, and we're talking with one of the authors of the book, the F-35, the inside story of the Lightning II, retired U.S. Navy Captain Tom Burbage, uh, and uh, test pilot and the executive vice president of this program for uh, at the program manager level uh, for about 13 years, you said, I think, Tom. You know, the interesting thing, uh, that little video is less than a year old. 
that's why I wanted to play it because you know I got to be honest with you uh, I've run for uh, U.S. Senate uh, and, and I've actually called uh, as a as a candidate to cancel that this program because I had lost faith in it. Uh, you were talking before how how uh, you know the government decided it was going to have faith in it. Why do you think they did that? Basically, the, the three services were all in the process of starting development of their own replacement aircraft. But we don't fight as single services, and we don't fight as a, as a single nation anymore. We fight as an allied group of frontline operators. And the decision was made to try to finally, has technology arrived, that will allow us to do um, a family of airplanes that are uniquely designed for the operating environments of the services and what they need to operate from small ship, big ship, and the airfields, and yet still, if we put them next to each other uh, and you got in the cockpit, you wouldn't know which one you're in. They're identical. And so you can jump from one to the other and minimize your training costs. The allies can join up and fly and fight with you as you go inbound into a target. There's all kinds of operational advantages that come from that outcome as hard as it has been to try and do that in the past. So it was a stretch to, to try and do that. And of course, we found all kinds of other things that came along the way. One was the rise of social media happened right yeah. as the program was going through its challenges and suddenly everybody on the internet with an opinion was connected. Um, yeah. You know, we had the cultural roles and missions conflict that uh, that occurred between the services and mm. and there were, uh, you know, fratricides starting to occur in some areas. So we, so we had to work our way through that and, and it, it wasn't me, it was a team of people, government people, industry yeah. people and others, uh, particularly the operators that really stood up and said, we need the airplane and we need to do this. There's a point in time where large programs, when they breach a certain cost uh, threshold, then, then they go through a, a restructuring, and that's called mm -hmm. a non-party breach. And basically, the Secretary of Defense has to stand up and say, this is a very important program for me, I want to continue it. And they had to stand up and say that. And they, they did. And they added the additional funding that was required, and the program continued on. So, um, What was the original delivery date requirement on the original uh, program? Do you remember? Uh, you know, under the under the proposal days, which was where the acquisition reform started, uh, yeah. I believe it at one point in time, the proposal for this program was supposed to be 100 page limited. It wound up being 25,000 pages. So <laughs> it just shows that some of those initial things you just can't you just can't present all the data that was being asked for in 100 pages. So uh, you know, the the, the original um, initial operating time frame was in the 2012-2014 time frame. It wound up being around 2016-17. Huh. So yeah. it years and we went to that redesign process. Yeah, just to, just folks, just to give you an idea that this is not just a fighter jet. Uh, uh, from the book, the F-35 is a reconnaissance aircraft, electron, electronic warfare and jamming aircraft, a data fusion center, uh, a precision night bomber, and a control aircraft for unmanned aerial vehicles, and you can get the book uh, on Amazon there. I mean, Tom, what are you hearing from the field? Uh, uh, I assume you guys interviewed some folks uh, uh, that have flown the aircraft uh, at the combat ready level, the squadron level, right? Oh, yes, we did. Um, and uh, I haven't found a pilot yet that doesn't like the airplane and doesn't want to fly it, or wants yeah. to go back to the airplane he was flying before this. I mean, it, it's a it's a game changer when 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 it goes into uh, a high air threat environment that other airplanes just can't survive in. 
Yeah, it's uh, especially since it's a bomb deliverer. You know, it's it's not just an air-to-air fighter. You know, I, I know the F-22 got changed over to, to li- deliver uh, JDAMs, but that, that wasn't its focus mission uh, in its design and development phase, uh, to my knowledge. But this aircraft specifically was that. How about the Marines and the and the the, uh, the uh, vertical takeoff and landing capability? Uh, how are, are they? Uh, those old Harrier pilots giving it a thumbs up now? They are, and. Uh... The United Kingdom operates the same version of the airplane as does the Italian Air Force slash Italian Navy. They're sort of joint on it. Um, and there was an interesting exercise when the Queen Elizabeth II, which is the new carrier that was built just for the F-35, when it deployed its first combat deployment last year, it had two squadrons of U.S. Marine Corps airplanes on it, one squadron of U.K. airplanes. And when it went through the Med, the Italians came out and flew on it. So on the same day, yeah. they had three nations flying off of a of an international ship, not a U.S. ship. As a, it was a first. So, but again, that 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 secret of uh, operational advantage that comes with a family of airplanes that fly and fight together is starting mm-hmm. to be unlocked. I don't think it's been realized to its full potential yet, but I think it will be. Yeah, when, for the layperson, uh, you know, and I understand every word you say <laughs> because of my background. But for the layperson, as a you know, from a technology device perspective, uh, where is the F-35 uh, when you, if you were to you know try to relate it to a technology level of say you know uh, AI or an iPhone with AI, uh, that kind of comparison uh, as far as the level of technology goes, where would you say it is? Uh, well, I would say that. Uh... We, we call things iPhones now, but they're not iPhones. They're computers, yeah. and they have a phone function. In a lot of ways, we <laughs> call this a fighter, and it's really not a fighter. It's got all these other functions. And if you think about it, in the old days, when you were going in on a strike into a defended area, you'd drug those other airplanes along with you to add mm-hmm. their war fighting capability to your flight. You can't do that these days. The, the air defense systems are too sophisticated. So so I think, um, I think the airplane... Um, embodies everything that was envisioned to embody. And the big question is, what's the next evolution of it? What's going to come next? I know they would like to have more power for a new generation of directed energy type things. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of things that that are constantly pulling on you, you know, to increase the capability of an airplane as it goes through its lifetime. So, um, and then there's another generation. The generational jump is not going to occur anytime soon. It'll occur. It'll take similar time frames as this one took to develop uh, a, a serious set of requirements and the technologies needed to execute those. Yeah, the uh, you know I was in the I came into the B one early in its its uh, operational phase. Uh, you know, so they were still handpicking crews out of the major command to uh, from other platforms and those kind of things. We hadn't really started lieutenants through the training program yet. Uh, but one of the things we found is that the aircraft just wasn't, it wasn't originally designed, especially from a hardware perspective, to be easily modified uh, to keep up with weapons technology. Uh, you know, the electronics you can do, but it wasn't really designed to go past the 1980s, early 1980s uh, and late 70s on like cathode ray tubes and those kind of things. Uh, did you guys intentionally uh, set the F-35 up to be better or more capable at doing that kind of evolution? 
that was the fundamental requirement was to de design the software architecture that would allow you to do upgrades to the program going forward. You wouldn't have to change everything in the airplane every time you want to bring a new weapon on or a new sensor on. Um, you could adapt it to the current architecture that's in the airplane. So an awful lot of work went into doing that. And that drove a lot of the software quantity that's in the airplane. There's about 9 million lines of code in, in a F-35, flying F-35. A lot more on the ground system to support it. Wow, that's that's pretty incredible, man. Uh, well, uh, if you were talking to, I'm gonna ask my one last question. If you were talking to a, uh, a, a, a kid that's starting pilot training, trying to recruit him to wanna go to fly the F-35, what's the one minute pitch you would give him? You're gonna fly a mission that you can't fly in any other airplane and you're gonna come home safe at the end of the day. That's a pretty damn good pitch, Tom. I appreciate it. Uh, uh, retired U.S. Navy Captain Tom Burbage, uh, president of the Calvert Group, uh, U.S. Naval Academy group of uh, alumni that's uh, uh, trying to fight this cultural Marxism that's spread through DOD and our senior leadership, even at the chairman of the Joint Chiefs nominee level. And Tom, I appreciate you joining me today. Thank you very much. My pleasure completely, Rob. Great to talk to you. God bless you. Thanks for your service. Well, folks, you know, I had to put that on there because I was opposed to the F-35, so I, I, I was excited to get the opportunity to interview Tom, and uh, I'm even more excited of what I've learned about that platform and that the taxpayer is now getting what it paid for, what we paid for, uh, because when I made my comments about killing that program or canceling it, uh, we weren't getting it and we were paying a lot. So uh, so that's a really a good news story. I recommend getting the book, F-35, F The Inside Story of the Lightning Tube. Go to Amazon and get it. Uh, and uh, I think you can find the Calvert Group uh, on the, the internet. Just uh, Google that uh, or Google Tom Burbage's name uh, as the president of that group and see what they're up to. You can go to the STARS website, stars.org, uh, S-T-A-R-R-S.org. Uh, and probably find them through there also. Well, that's it for Training Tuesday. I hope you got a lot out of that. Uh, uh, we need your help. Call your senator. Tell them to vote no on that chairman of the Joint Chiefs Staff nominee. We want somebody that believes in America and believes in a meritocracy, and that's how you build a military team to win America's wars, and that's what we're paid to do when we're wearing that uniform, folks. That's it. Paid to win. Paid to win and we need the best to win. You don't get the best by diversity hires. Tomorrow's Whistleblower Wednesday. Michael Hitchborn's with us. Again, you remember him. He's, he's the, the head of a Catholic organization that calls out the Catholic Church sometimes, uh, and he's got an explosive new report that he and I are gonna talk about tomorrow, Whistleblower Wednesday. I'm Rob Manus, Red Voice Media Network. Dare to be dangerous. Tell the facts and the truth. God bless you. <laughs> cronies have lost over three trillion of america's retirement savings in 2022 alone with inflation running rampant and the stock market